The phenomenon and history of folk horror has been explored in a documentary, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, which is screening at City Gallery Wellington. A subgenre of horror, folk horror, is described in the film as the prosaic meets the uncanny. A common theme is connection to the land, returning to the roots and cultures which have been sustained in spite of a dominant culture that's progressed and moved on. I spoke to Canadian director, writer and horror film critic Kayla Janice about her deep dive into folk horror and why she thinks it's so intriguing to audiences. I mean, I think back when, you know, like the the sort of renaissance of folk horror or whatever that's been happening for the last decade it's been kind of slowly happening and a lot of it was coming from um british filmmakers who were tapping into stuff they had nostalgia about from when they were a kid and a lot of um 70s british television was very folk horror infused and so we were basically just seeing that play out in a kind of cyclical fashion but then i think what happened with the pandemic is things intensified to the point where people just globally um, started looking towards alternative means of sustaining themselves, like either with growing their own food um, and being, you know, like having their own immediate environment being something that they could control and that could keep them alive. Mm. Um, And then also just like something that could Uh, spiritually sustain them you know so people started looking to all different types of alternative religions and um, different means of communicating with nature and stuff that were not coming from just the dominant religions because when COVID first started nobody knew what it was you know and people were you know like people were learning how to bake bread or whatever like within the first week they're like cutting, cutting their own hair and uh you know, people thought everything's going to change now. And so we have, you know, they were like, what if we can't get food or what, you know, there was like a shortage of everything worldwide. Mm. And I think that a lot of the interest in folk horror became intensified just because people became interested in just folk culture, period, you know? Mm. And so the horror was just a part of that larger interest, this larger drive to connect to our own abilities to sustain ourselves. The film is split into three parts. You've got British folk horror, American folk horror, and then world folk horror. And it felt like it was as much a history lesson in some ways to me as it was an education in folk horror and the films. But seeing the timeline and the films laid out in that sort of order, it was really interesting to see just how much the folk horror films are a reflection of what's happening in society. In the 70s, people had moved into the cities and suddenly they, they became oversaturated. So there was this desire to go back, back to the country, back to the simpler times. And can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think just like when the, the first, um, when the, you know, the unholy trinity of folk horror, which is like Blood on Satan's Claw, Witchfinder General, mm. and The Wicker Man first came out, it was at this time where the 60s counterculture was was changing things, you know, where um, there was this real drive to the, the back to the land movement. There was the first Earth Day in 1970, and a lot of people were making a renewed pledge to the environment at that time. Mm. Um, there was, uh, you know, this huge uh, rise of interest in occultism, you know, so, um, you know, not just occultism like witchcraft and satanism which was part of it but also just alternative types of christianity you know like alternative strands 
And the 70s, I would say even more than the 60s, you know, the 60s were very much about like shaking things up. And mm. then the 70s were really where people were kind of trying to find their place. You know, they had, they're like, okay, we've kind of smashed everything. So now what do we do? Like, where do we go? Like, where do we find our, our people? Where do we find like where we fit in and stuff? Of course, in the 80s, you have a backlash against that, you know, uh, where you have this real uh, push back to like family values, yeah. you know, and um you know so it's like like i mean just even as like a latchkey kid of the 70s you know being a kid who like comes home and your parents are working or they're mm. off wherever you know like kids my age just you know we just came home from school and took care of ourselves and mm. made food and, <laughs> and uh you know that and that was part of because the parents were they were still trying to figure things out you know and and in the 70s then you have the or sorry in the 80s you have like the satanic panic um where uh this this interest in alternative spiritualities suddenly becomes seen as like not something that's just of interest but it becomes like an actual threat to the mm. establishment you know and uh and so then you have all this um you know furor about working mothers about how they're mm. leaving their kids in daycares and and then people are you know molesting kids in daycares and it's really it's the mother's fault because she's working you know that's really the message so you have just like all these different eras where things play out and, you know, in many cultures, religion just becomes part of that conversation all the time, you know, and in the States, it's been a huge part of the conversation and still is. The societal changes were tied in with spiritual changes, you know, and we're still having a lot of the same conversations about climate change and stuff, you know, so I feel like the 1970s has already come back once before and then it's come back again. Well, there is a writer in the film who says, you know, it was, in Britain at least, it was this conservative government, uh, you know, there were economic issues, a cost of living crisis. We're looking at what we're doing to the environment. Uh, we're considering Britain's place in Europe. And he's describing the 70s. It's like he, he could be could describing, be describing today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Personally, I found the American folk horror chapter of the film very interesting. Uh, and and many of the films in that chapter are very much grounded in reality. For example, following the Civil War and the idea that, that the South were left behind. And then you have the depiction of the Appalachian people on screen and this idea that ongoing poverty and the proximity to wilderness paired with the ambivalence towards authority created this idea that it breeds danger and that you know they could act out in violence at any point. That sort of moves forward to include the family unit, the family unit becoming a place where it becomes corrupt. It's no longer, you know, a safe and loving place. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I mean, like, I tried to structure the American section because obviously, like, you know, we started in Britain, which is an island, and then you move to America, which is like such a huge place mm. compared to England. You know, so much about so much of folk horror is about contact, you know, between different cultures yeah. and there being like a culture clash. And so I sort of tried to structure it where you're moving through the different branches of colonization in the United States, you know, like as different groups get moved, you know, different groups move over. Mm. And like the people in Appalachia, for instance, Appalachia was um, was populated pretty much by like the fourth wave, like the fourth British migration that came over. There's kind of like four waves of people and the Appalachian, the people that came over that were from like the Scottish borders and and Ireland and stuff like they arrived and uh, 
were and they faced hostility when they arrived in the colonies, you know, and so everybody kind of pushed them out mm-hmm. to like Appalachia and the Ozarks and stuff, you know, and so you had these people settling in Appalachia that had come from the Scottish borders, uh, which was also a very fiercely independent region, you know, like where they're often having to defend their land against constant incursions and stuff, mm. and very much like you know, like settling feuds themselves and. Uh, and very mistrustful of authority. And, you know, there's things that get woven into these stories, some things that are culturally true or are culturally traditions, you know, that get kind of like also demonized and exaggerated. Mm. And I mean, horror just it loves to exaggerate things. That is that is kind of what horror does, is it takes something that's actually kind of a universal problem or a normal, banal, everyday domestic problem or something, and then it exaggerates it to the worst possible scenario, you know? And so you have a community or you have the the, the various communities in Appalachia, which is also such, just such an interesting region because um, you also had a lot of um, like, uh, in you know, formerly enslaved peoples who moved into that mm, region, mm. you know? And so then you have a really interesting mix too of like spiritualities and stuff happening. Their close knit communities are seen as something very dangerous, you know? And um, and then something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm. which is also about like the corruption of the family unit um, is much more tied in with like Southern Gothic, you know, and the sort of uh, decrepitation of the, of the, the family home after the civil war and stuff and just yeah like a lot of southern gothic stories have you know the sort of crumbling house and the family with weird incest backgrounds and just these weird family secrets you know and so a lot of like what you see in chainsaw massacres coming from southern gothic and you know so southern gothic is also another genre (laughs) that kind of weaves in and out of folk horror you know because in southern gothic you also have these families that become very insular um and the idea that isolation breeds sickness isn't it that was one of the yeah. quotes from the and film. so that's the thing i mean that's something that's even from the from the earliest colonies in the u.s um and i admittedly going into this movie i knew very little of this stuff you know so i knew a lot about british folk horror mm. and a lot of the rest was a real learning process for me and I found the American stuff so fascinating, mm, you know, mm. but it was like the, you know, when they first settled in the colonies and you started to have people splitting off, you know, they'd have schisms within their communities. Mm. And then people would be like, well, we're going to go over here and we're going to start our own colony and we're going to start our own colony. And then you would have these like very small communities that were being established kind of like in the wilderness. And then you would have situations where like somebody would go crazy and kill everybody in the colony you know um and so these stories actually these things actually did happen and uh you know so there there is this there is this general fear that if you have small isolated communities uh they'll just get up to something no good you know and that that rippled out through not just horror but even things like you know the manson family Mm -hmm. and like Amish people or whatever, you know, like Amish people. I, I made a point of referencing Amish people yeah. in the film because, um, you know, Amish people are these totally passive people and nonviolent and whatever. But to people who are not Amish, they have a really hard time understanding this culture, you know. And so in horror, you will sometimes see villains dressed as Amish people, <laughs> um, you know, like the, the guy in Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. And there's like in uh, 
you know, there's like a few of these movies, like Isaac in Children of the Corn is kind of dressed as an Amish person. <laughs> well, it's all and, sort of, uh, it's yeah. all playing on our fears, right? It's all playing on our deepest fears and then sort of blowing them up. And this idea yeah. that if you do leave people to their own device and let them and let them be, that eventually nature will take over and natural instincts yeah. and that violence. You just mentioned before the colonies and, and moving from Britain to America and then you move into the world part of the documentary and the indigenous folk horror films in particular I think for New Zealand because we have Maori people and Australia which is obviously very close by and Canada as well um, it, it, I think it would particularly resonate with audiences that part of the film and it was interesting because the way the indigenous stories uh, paint the people are sort of ghosts in film. They literally disappear. And so there's this real othering of them. Also, that the idea that Indigenous stories matter, what the people offer the environment matters, but the people don't matter. That was a very clear and stark portrayal. Do you think that this is something that's changing? I mean, I would like to say that it's changing or I would like to see it changing. I mean, there's definitely... Uh, movement towards it changing you know there's there's a lot of like um there's you know i don't know how much it's actually changing mm, you know but mm. there's like attempts they may be feeble attempts you mm. know at, at things changing where institutions uh create all kinds of incentives you know uh to try to um give more visibility to indigenous stories and stuff and you have much more sort of watchdog activities happening around like pretendians, you know, like mm. people who are then taking advantage of these initiatives mm. um, by claiming to have indigenous heritage. Mm. Um, and so that stuff is taken very seriously in Canada, you know, like we're having the, you know, I mean, there's been several high profile cases like this, Buffy mm. St. Marie, the singer is the most recent one. Um, but it's, you know, so it is something that I think is so much more in the news and so much has so much more visibility now um, as to whether Indigenous people themselves actually feel that these changes are happening. I don't know yeah. if I can say that, you know, because like the sense I get from a lot of the Indigenous people I know is that they don't feel that things are changing. They just feel like it's a lot of lip service, mm. you know, and and not real change, you know. Um, and I think that those those uh yeah it's 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 just interesting whenever you have to have a big change like this you know like in the 70s when the women's you know like when the 60s the 60s women's movement compared to the 70s women's movement you know it, it the movement became like angrier and angrier you know but you kind of like in the 70s it was you know you had radical feminism um and very strong uh you know, like it started, women's movement started off as about women having equal pay in the workplace, you know, and then by the 70s, the women's movement was very much about um, men's predatory relationships mm. against women, you know, and, but you needed that anger, you know, you needed that stuff or nothing, the dial wouldn't have changed, the needle wouldn't have moved at all, you know, so you need uh, that real vigilance, you know, and so I know a lot of Indigenous artists and activists who are striving for these things, but I feel like, um, and I mean, right when I was finishing the film, like literally as it was, as it had its premiere was like the, um, you know, they had just discovered hundreds of bodies at uh, one of the residentials, you know, the former grounds of a residential mm -hmm. school. 
mm. here. And uh, and then all through the summer, it just continued. They kept turning up more and more and more of these like mass burial sites, you know. And it was literally, it was like what Jesse Wente, who's one of the speakers in the film, you know, says. He's like, oh, well, if people are going to be afraid of this trope of the mm. Indian mm. burial ground, I got mm. news for you. It's all an Indian burial <laughs> yeah, ground. Yeah, he does, you know? yeah. And, uh, and that was one of the lines, actually, people would applaud when he would say that in the movie, you know. Yeah. I, but it was really chilling to see that playing out right as the movie was coming out. It was because it was so, I just feel like so many people just, as a, as a Canadian who works in the arts with a lot of left-wing people, it's mm. something that you, you know, you're aware of and you hear about a lot. But I feel like for a lot of people, they just didn't realize that or had not crossed their mind. Like, holy, like, wow. Like mm, there, mm. there really are all these hidden burial grounds everywhere where, where like all these kids who were forcibly taken from their mm. communities um, just disappeared and ended up dead and unaccounted for, you know? Um, it's, a, it's just, yeah, it's a horrible history. And I think that in like North America, there's a more, much more complicated relationship to folk horror than there is in Britain because of this, you know, because a lot of this stuff is still really recent history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't look back at our past as something that's like this, like quaint old history, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's something that's like that, you know, they didn't close residential schools till the 1990s, yeah. you know, so this was still happening. Um, and so, you know, you have the residue of slavery, you have like all the indigenous, um, you know, residential school system and stuff and all this stuff is just, I mean, people are, people are, you know, there's tons of people living, you know, who are, who have these horrible experiences, mm. you know. It's still very so present for a lot people. of people. Yeah. Mm. So it's, it's just, it's, it, it's, so American folk horror, I think is something that's like much more um, painful for mm. people than British folk horror. I want to talk about witches because they're a very prominent part of folk horror. You know, you have the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts. There's the witch, the craft, the witches of Eastwick. And these are all females existing outside of expectations and what what's expected of mm-hmm. them, you know, which creates fear and anxiety. Why is the witch so popular in folk horror? I mean, I think, I think the witch is popular in horror, period, you know, because the witch is a very empowered figure. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is... Um, you know, we didn't get to go into it tons in the documentary and, and, you know, there's so many documentaries about witchcraft, you mm. know, that I felt like they could be addressed better in yeah. those documentaries. But, you know, the idea of the witch that we have is very much a created, uh, image, you know, like where the feminist movement kind of like re-envisioned the mm. idea of what the witch was and what she meant, you know, because, um, one thing that we do know about the witch hunts is that usually... It, you know, it was financially motivated, you know, so the idea of like the, um, you know, so it'd be people, people want their property or mm, something, you mm. know, so somebody rats somebody out and a lot of it was financially motivated or just to like, uh, once the witch hunt started like gathering steam, it's to get attention away from you by yeah. pointing to someone yeah. else, you know, um, but the idea of the witch as a symbolic, powerful figure who, uh, was like the midwife and the and the herbalist and stuff like this. Um, a lot of this is from a later generation of folklore, you know, that, you know, some folklorists question whether that is a meaning for the witch that we that we have given her subsequently, you know, but either way, it is something 
that horror uh, grabbed onto because horror, um, I mean, to, to my perspective, horror elevates women. I know a lot of people think the opposite happens in horror, but I actually think horror elevates women. It elevates female characters, female performers. Um, do you it's, mean it's, do you mean that it gives them effectively gives them screen time? That it gives them well, the it stage. Gives them, it gives them screen time, visibility, mm. lines, power. Mm. Um, I feel like even uh, yeah, I mean, like I think a lot of people when they think of horror and it being a misogynistic genre, they're usually thinking of slasher films, yeah. which is like one, it's like one small genre in like a huge, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like a small subgenre in a huge genre, yeah. you know. And it's very weird. It seems like people who who don't know much about horror or don't pay attention to it much, they just think that's all horror is. But it's like you know, horror existed for almost a century before like horror films existed mm. for almost a century before slasher films yeah. were made. Um, but anyway, so I think that, you know, in general, um, s- s- women are so central in horror mm. narratives. Um, and so the witch is just a great uh, figure because she's, um, you know, as Kat Ellinger, I think, points out in the documentary, you know, she's saying we have all these iconic kind of male figures you know like Dracula mm-hmm. Frankenstein mm-hmm. but the witch was kind of like the woman's character mm. and kind of like all the potential symbolism that you could pour into that character <laughs> has been poured into that character you know and so she's been reinterpreted and reimagined in so many films you know um but she retains that that power in all the in all of her iterations you know and uh and so I think uh, obviously, female fans of the genre love witch characters, you know, and male fans of the genre are totally fascinated by the witch also. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Robert Eggers, who directed The Witch, you know, talks about how, um, you know, the witch is so entrancing and so fascinating because, you know, she represents this feminine power that a lot of men are find threatening and dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, and so it's easy to make her a source of horror in yeah. a horror film because of that. Mm. But also for women, it's like um, she uh, she represents their own potentially destructive power. I do think that a lot of horror is is about um, trying to figure out what the deal is with women. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, like it's it's like you know because for so long it was a lot of men writing and directing horror films you know so it's like they are grappling with their own anxieties of like not understanding women yeah but at the same time elevating them in this really interesting way if we look at folk horror as reflecting current society if we take more recent examples uh midsummer starring florence Pugh, that's about a modern society not having space for grief, not allowing space for connection. Uh, it's a young couple who visit a commune and this older community is seen as very supportive and nurturing from the outside. If that's depicting life now and, and our society now, where do you think will, what do you think folk horror films will look like, you know, in the next decade, in the next two decades? What what do you think the themes will be? I mean, I think I think we're first going to see a wave of just a lot of uh, a lot of folk horror films that are just trying to reiterate whatever they've seen in in the horror, the folk horror films that have been successful. I think like we we already see that a little bit where things are when things become popular and Mm. then everybody's like, oh, we need to make a folk horror film. So then you start having to wade through stuff um, (laughs) to find the, the gems. But 
there's going to be, I feel like there's going to be folk horror films about now, about the time that we're in, mm. you know, you know, like we have obviously all these pandemic movies that were made during the pandemic yeah. that reference the pandemic and stuff like that. But I think like this pandemic for a future generation is going to become a touchstone mm. culturally that people in 20 years or 40 years are making uh, these kind of exaggerated horror films like about that period, especially like if they just remember it as a child or if they didn't, if they weren't even born mm. during mm. it and they have their own imagining of it. Mm. Um, God, you know, I would just love what I would love. And I, what I hope that uh, the more interesting folk horror films have, have brought up is is the homogeneity of so many horror films in terms of like like the cultural homogeneity and how uh, we so desperately need other voices telling stories and making movies, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that we're gonna see folk horror films made by the cultures that are sometimes othered or made outside yeah. in these films, you yeah. know? So like where we are seeing way more, like I would love to see a Gullah Geechee folk horror movie made like something like Daughters of the Dust. Uh, like, I don't know if you ever saw that Julie Dash movie, Daughters of no, the Dust. No, I haven't. Amazing film, but it's not a horror film. It's just a, it was kind of a period film set in the Gullah Geechee, like in the islands mm. off of, uh, you know, the Southern US. And I would love to see, um, you know, a folk horror film that's actually made by that community mm, about mm. that community, about their culture and superstitions and stuff like that. Um, I would love to see way more like indigenous stories that are dealing with, uh, you know, folk horror and folk customs. And, and I mean, they don't have the word folk. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. in the whole concept of folk is definitely that term itself is something that's like the, the, the white colonizers yeah. term, you know? Um, so I don't know that it would have that word attached to it, but I think that I would just love to see more stories that are like, these kinds of stories, but from the actual perspective of people in those cultures that are, are usually depicted kind of insensitively in these mm, movies mm. in the past, you know? Yeah, I think I think that's the future of horror. I think like for a long time, people were like, let's push women creators and women directors, women writers, you know? And so there was a huge push for that. And mm. I feel like horror has made huge strides in that area. And so I feel like the next step is like broadening it more, you know, and like getting more voices uh, and more perspectives and i think that's that's the only way that we that horror has a future as far as i'm concerned you've also written a book called house of psychotic women first released in 2012 and then re-released last year it's a very personal very honest and reflective um, recount of your tumultuous upbringing and adolescence weaved in around hundreds of horror film reviews and analysis what was that like to write a book you know, while you're looking at all these films and talking about films you've seen, but also mm -hmm. while writing about your own life? When I first wrote it, um, or when I first started thinking about writing House of Psychotic Women, it was just going to be a collection of essays. Like I was going to do like, you know, 10 different essays about these uh, types of uh, neurotic characters in films or emotionally unstable women, mm. you know, um, and there wasn't going to be any sort of narrative thread and there certainly wasn't going to be any uh, autobiographical elements to it or anything. Um, but then uh, I get discouraged pretty easily when I'm working on stuff because it takes me a long time to do 
things. And so inevitably someone will come up with something in the meantime that's kind of similar to what I wanted to <laughs> yeah. do. And then I'm like, oh, oh that was my I'm idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that kind of thing happened when, you know, I used to, I was like a mail order, uh, I, I would collect movies through the mail. Like mm -hmm. I would buy bootleg tapes and stuff like this. And so the kind of currency I had was that I had all these rare movies that nobody really wrote about mm. in, in any of the kind of mainstream genre magazines. And in a lot of academic books about horror, they tended to focus on much more mainstream accessible stuff. Like even though the ideas were really deep and profound, mm. the movies themselves they wrote about were just like aliens or a Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> yeah. or really normal stuff. Like popular films. So yeah. I was like, yeah, I was like, well, I know all these like totally obscure movies. Mm. So that's what I can bring to this, you know. But then as the Internet kind of became a thing, there was all these blogs that popped up. And, you know, so, you know, people, you don't you don't have an editor who's saying like, oh, that's not going to sell or that nobody is yeah, interested in that. Yeah. Right. About whatever they care about, whatever they're obsessed with. And so all these blogs started coming out and many of them had really good and really in-depth writing about a lot of these obscure films that I was going to write about. And so I just was like, oh, well, now I don't have that uh, that ace in my pocket anymore. So like, what am I going to do? And so I was just going to throw out the whole project and not even do it. And then it was like a couple of friends, like totally uh, separately from each other said, why don't you write about it in terms of like, your relationship with these movies mm. and uh, like write about your, your responses to them and your reactions mm. to them and how, you know, and I was just like, why, why would I do that? I was like, nobody, I'm not, I'm not like a known person or a mm. famous mm. person who mm. cares about like me and my life and how my life relates to these mm. movies. Mm. But, um, but I thought, okay, well I'll try writing something like that. And I found that when I started writing it like that, like writing it, from my perspective, mm. which is something you're taught not to do. It's not as um, frowned upon now, but at the time when I wrote my book, you definitely were not supposed to be writing about film with yourself in it. You know, like you yeah. don't even say I or me or anything. Yeah. Like it's not about you. It's about the, f yeah. So you're, you're taught like not to do that, to mm. not be self-indulgent like that. And so I was going against like <laughs> what I had been taught and what I thought was the right way to write about films. But I found that when I did that, it was really freeing because it was like nobody could tell me I was wrong if mm. I'm just writing about from my own experiences. Mm. And I think that's a thing that stops stops me and stops a lot of other people from writing is they're afraid they're going to be wrong. You know, they're afraid that they're going to get something wrong and then it's going to be embarrassing and stuff like this. And so they have a lot of doubt before they even start putting words on paper and so I had all those doubts and stuff. And I felt like a lot of those doubts started to fall away when I was writing from my own experience, because I was like, well, if I just say up front that this is my life and this is my experience, nobody can tell me that I'm wrong because mm. it's my interpretation, mm. uh, my subjective interpretation of the events that have occurred around me and what these move and what I think of when I watch these movies and why they resonate with me because of things that have happened in my own life mm -hmm. that I've experienced or emotions that I've experienced or outbursts that I've had, you know? And so then it just, all of a sudden it became really easy. I'd been working on this book for 10 years and made no progress. And then all of a sudden in like two months I had this book 
uh, when I started writing it that way, you know, but I handed it into my publisher who was like a publisher that I had pitched on doing this book of essays, you know, yeah, like, so that's the publisher had agreed to publish. And when I sent him this book, I said, well, I don't think this is what you're going to want to publish. Uh, but this is what I have. have. So I sent it to him anyway. And he was just like, he's like, wow, no, I love it. I love it. And, uh, but I, I expected when it came out that like, people would mock it, you know, like, I, I just thought people are going to just make fun of this. And so I was just really kind of stealing myself for how to deal with all the bad reviews. Um, and then it came out and, and instead of people making fun of it, I got all these emails from people saying how much they related to it and how when they watch movies, they kind of also watch them autobiographically, you know, and so it had uh, this total, it just, the response to it was completely opposite of what I expected. So, yeah. yeah and then I made a new, yeah, I made a new edition last year mm -hmm. just because there's so many more movies and especially more movies, tons more movies made by women that were of this type of yeah. movie. And In the so last I was decade, like, well, yeah. I yeah, I was like, I want to do a new edition and include all these new movies that have been made in the last decade. So. Did it feel like, a cathartic experience when you were writing it a little bit but not as much as you would think mm. you know i mean for many of the stories many of the old stories about my childhood i feel like i had a, i had actually told those stories so many times like to therapists yeah. and stuff like i vocalized those stories so many times that they had no effect yeah as on you're me writing them. I yeah. Said them. um the hard part was actually just the, the um like as we got further into the book, because it's relatively chronological, yeah. when we get closer to what was my then present history, mm -hmm. those chapters were much harder to write. Um, harder and there's still lots of stuff. Harder yeah. because if it's closer to you, it's harder to take a step back and analyze yourself or harder yeah. because... I mean, yeah. harder to, harder to step, take a step back and analyze it, but also harder to be honest about it, mm. I think. And, um, uh, you know, like maybe you haven't, your, your feelings aren't resolved. You haven't made up your mind yet. What you think of yeah. those events. Mm. So it's so interesting to me yeah. that you, it's so interesting to me that you were worried or that you thought people would mock it or, you know, because the whole time that I've, I've been listening to the audiobook of it, but the whole time I'm just like, oh God, this is so interesting. And oh God, I can only imagine how many people would relate to this. And, and in so many ways, all the, all the characters that you see in the, that you hear about in the films, the analysis, you know, as a female, as a woman, those themes are just so present in your life from day one you know just all the things we are told as women all the all the things we're told by whether it be your parents or your teachers or kind of what society tells you how you should be how you should act so I just yeah I, I just sort of felt like it was hearing about everything I already know but had never heard in one sitting you know <laughs> there's a real there's a real familiarity to it um what is it about the horror genre that you're so attracted to and that it's kept you interested all this time? I mean, it's hard to say because, uh, I mean, I definitely have broadened my interests. Like, mm. I would say up until I was about 30, I almost exclusively only watched horror movies. <laughs> and, um, I mean, when I was in my teen, I watched a lot of teen delinquent movies, but mm -hmm. I would say, like, 
other than that, it was like horror, you know, people would recommend other types of movies and I'd be like, oh, no, <laughs> you know? and, uh, but ever since then, uh, you know, since my thirties, I would say, um, you know, my, my interest has broadened quite a bit. And so I have like all, all different types of like little niches of film that I work in now, mm. but horror for me was like, it was the first thing. It was like my first memories are horror movies, mm. you know, and quality time with my parents watching horror movies. And so I feel like I have, uh, so on, in the one sense, like they still scared me as much as they scared anyone else. I was not definitely not immune to nightmares and all these things. Like I would watch, I watched Poltergeist and, and I was like afraid of all my toys. You know, I had to have my mom had to take all my toys out of my yeah. room because I was afraid they were going to strangle me in my sleep. And, you know, so I definitely, and I would have to like look through my fingers and just all the things that people who are afraid of horror yeah. films, all, I have the same reactions, but I also have this mixed reaction where I have this very warm and fuzzy feeling associated with horror films, like this very comforting home feeling, you know, because of the way they're so, they were so ingrained in my childhood, you know, like, and they're so, um, it was like, you know, I had a stepdad who had a really bad temper and but he he like all of our good memories together like mm. the, the nice memories are all around like watching horror movies together you know and so um you know so there's like i get all the sort of same thrills and uh vicarious um you know adrenaline and everything that other people get from watching mm. horror films but it's always been so intertwined with my family to mm. me. And so I think that, uh, you know, I watch horror films and they just have this, um, I just feel like, oh, these are my people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like when I'm watching a horror movie and I, I don't know, it's like, I don't, a I don't know of, how to just- A source of comfort somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 